Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have Johnny Will. Johnny is a Scottish Ambulance Service Specialist Paramedic, and he's on secondment at the moment as a Clinical Effectiveness Lead for Urgent Community and Primary Care. And I think I got that all out in one go. He is the Medical Officer for Tayside Mountain Rescue and does all sorts of things, a bit of event medicines, wild fitness, he's a paddleboarder, and he's affectionately known on the rescue team as Tayside Ewok on account of being short <laughs> and hairy and because we've got too many folk called Johnny on the team. So, Johnny, thanks so much for coming on and joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. What an introduction. You have been involved with various things to do with urgent care for almost a couple of years now. I guess, what's the job description? What's your role within that? Good question. Good question. It's, um, I guess, in some ways, it's been trailblazing a little bit. So some of it has been, I guess, creating the role as we've gone along. But a clinical effectiveness lead, and there's quite a few clinical effectiveness leads in the Scottish Ambulance Service. And I guess, ultimately, we're each looking to influence clinical practice towards better patient care, better patient experience, and better outcomes. I'm obviously looking at performance, and we write a lot of guidance. And I guess, just steer practice. Um, So my role for urgent community and primary care is mostly been looking at alternatives to ED. So it's not the sexiest bits, you know, we hear all the time about out-of-hospital cardiac arrests and major trauma and those kind of things. And this is kind of everything else. It's the almost mundane, everyday patients that that our clinicians see out in the road. It's a huge part of our workload. It's probably about 40% of our entire work for the Scottish Ambulance Service is this urgent care. Uh, And I guess it's about optimising what we do for those kind of patients. In terms of the scale of the problem, 40% of calls to SAS that are things that, from the sounds of it, potentially don't need to go to A&E, but I would suspect there's probably still some pathology in amongst there, and they're often folk who've got quite a lot going on. Is that fair? Yeah, completely. And I think that's the bit that's the challenge with this. And to put it into perspective, if we take things like our major trauma, I think it's about 1% of our workload out of hospital cardiac arrest, about 1.5%. And in fact, if we take all the MIs, the strokes, everyone who's life-threatening that gets blue-lighted to hospital in a time-critical way, it's about 10% of SAS's workload. We've then got probably about 20% that is kind of either completely inappropriate or it's, you know, our clinicians can see and treat and discharge on scene and that's completely fine. And then there's an element that's about 30%. It's just straight transport. And, you know, that's always going to be a huge part of what the Scottish Ambulance Service does. So when we say 40%, it's actually the, the biggest chunk of work that we do. It's actually our bread and butter now. And when you look at those 10%, those emergency patients, it's quite easy to diagnose what's going on. There's quite a protocolized treatment. So you, you know what you should be doing with that. You're then looking at sort of minimizing on scene time preventing deterioration, you're pre-alerting the hospital and you're expediting into that definitive care. And it's pretty straightforward often. Clearly it's life-saving and that's why so much emphasis and so much importance is put on it. But when we look at our patients in that urgent care setting, it's often something that's not life-threatening. It's a genuine health concern, but the patients have got long-term conditions. They've got multiple morbidities. It's potentially impacted with frailty, cognitive challenges, mental health problems, social care needs. And it's a real challenge. And I think it's it's probably work that traditionally didn't belong to the ambulance service, 
But as a lot of other services have reduced over the years, the Scottish Ambulance Service, and actually probably all ambulance services in the UK, have become a bit of a 24-7 catch-all for anyone in need, particularly out of hours. And so it, it is complex. It's a huge challenge. And it's putting pressure on the ambulance service. It's putting pressure on the you know ED front doors. And for me, really, this is the biggest challenge that we face at the moment. And I think getting this urgent care piece right really can protect primary response for those emergencies and for when patients need us the most. Both you and I are kind of based in North Tayside and up here, you know, you've got often one ambulance that's covering a pretty vast geographical area. And I guess if they are taking something to hospital that maybe could be avoided, that's that resource completely gone. And certainly I know in the past when I've been looking for crews to back me up at jobs where you've got critically unwell patients, actually, if they're away doing something else, that's that's not a resource that's easily replaceable. Yeah, completely. And that's the bit. I think we look at liabilities and risk based on a case-by-case basis, but actually the more that we attend more patients with these sort of lower acuity needs, the less capacity we've got to, to respond and be there for people when they really need us. And so it is a huge challenge. But I have to say, it's always amazing to see you on a job with us. So I can't see how much all the crews appreciate the basics doctors out there. And it's always nice to turn up on scene and, and see one of you there. There's this concept that I've come across called the, the right care strategy. And I just want you to kind of talk us through what it is and how that integrates with this redesign of urgent care. You know, for, for me, the new strategy, right care, I think it's just so simple, it's almost undeniable. So what we're trying to achieve is we find the right care for the patient in the right place and at the right time, and it's that simple. So you start with the patient, you work out what it is that the patient needs, and then you figure out the fastest way to get them there with a minimum amount of touch points. And so it's a much better patient experience, which is brilliant. as I think as a clinician, you get that little reward for, you know you've created a good care episode for the patient. And ultimately, it makes the system more efficient, which means that we, again, build that little bit of capacity back into the system so that we can, again, really be there for people when they need us. How does redesigning urgent care fit into that right care strategy? I mean, the redesign of urgent care has been around for about 18 months now. I guess it's the programme that aims to deliver that. And I've go all the way back. This is probably linked back to six essential actions. And then the redesign of urgent care is implementing that right care strategy. So the first part of that was across Scotland. Obviously, we've got 14 territorial health boards that split the country up. And each one was asked to provide a, a flow navigation centre. Now, actually, we've come down to 11 because some of the health boards share each other's expertise and centres. But effectively, this is a central point that can help manage the flow within any health board. So there's a senior clinical decision maker, usually an ST4 and above, or a consultant who can help guide destination support or some decision support for any kind of, you know, rural, remote clinicians like our paramedics or district nurses, GPs, that kind of thing. And there's also the ability to schedule care. So I think we all got quite familiar with the whole concept during COVID was that everyone is probably going to get COVID eventually. What we don't want to do is have everyone turn up at the same time and overwhelm the system. And if we can just flatten that curve a little bit, we can manage the demand better. It's exactly the same with this. What we're trying to do is take some of 
what is unscheduled work and then schedule it. So, you know, if you phone up and you say you've got a condition to 111 and they decide that you need an ambulance and we come out and we have a face-to-face appointment with you or even a remote consultation as is happening more and more. And we say, look, I see, I see what's going on here. You've got a genuine health concern and I think there's an investigation or an intervention or some drugs that you need today, but actually this is not life-threatening and it's not an emergency. What we can now do is call through to the flow navigation center and actually schedule you an appointment so firstly the hospital has a better idea of what's coming in they can manage that flow and for anyone that's worked in the hospital you always have those peaks and troughs throughout the day and they tend to be set times based on when ambulance crews change over when gp surgeries close all that kind of thing but you can flatten that curve by managing it a little bit better but then actually the beautiful thing about it is for the individual patient rather than saying right i'm going to take you up to hospital now you'll sit around for a few hours, you'll maybe get some investigations done. And then, you know, within four hours, someone will get back to you with a diagnosis and maybe an outcome from that appointment. I can say actually a fair idea of what what's going on here. And you know, and our paramedics are brilliant now at doing assessments. And we also have our advanced paramedics that are working out there. So it's a pretty robust assessment that you're getting. And we bring a lot of tools like ECG machines and all that kind of thing. So we know what's going on on scene often. But rather than waiting four hours in the ED, we send you to a booked appointment in two hours time where you walk in, you get seen by someone, you get those assessments done relatively quickly and you're back out the door. So you spend less time in there, which means there's less risk in terms of picking up infections and that kind of thing. But actually, even the bit between the clinician assessing you at home and you getting to hospital, you might be able to organize childcare, you know, feed the kids, put the kids to bed, whatever it is that's needed in there. And more and more often we can say, look, rather than us take you to hospital now and have your partner follow us in the car it's safe for your partner to take you in the car and that way our crews can conclude all care that they need to on scene they can give worsening statements and make sure they safety net the period between now and the appointment but they can then clear on scene and go on to the next emergency which there's a number of things one crews are more likely to stay in the area and because obviously the systems that we're running now hospitals tend to be that little bit further away because we're expecting a lot from them in terms of expert care 24 7 so it tends to be more centralized bigger centers and that pulls a lot of ambulance resources into the the cities i guess and but in this way you can clear back on your patch if you like and be available for the next patient but also it should free up again a little bit more capacity because particularly in scotland you know often our patients are quite rural and remote and the time it takes us to convey patients can have a significant impact on what we call service time. So the time that we're available to treat patients. And actually, if at that stage, we're not doing anything as a paramedic, we're just a really expensive taxi driver. And so if we can pass that that transport on to a family member, or in some cases, even to a taxi, you know, we've been there, we've assessed the patient, we know that it's safe, we know they're going to good care at the other end of the journey. And so often it is the best all round for everyone to have that scheduled appointment. A a huge change in mindset, because... I think historically, certainly as a basics clinician, rock up on scene, wait for the bus to arrive or turn up to support a crew, get the patient to the back and sort of no questions asked, they go to the nearest A&E. And actually, there are patients thinking back over the last few years where they haven't necessarily needed to go to that ED. They might have been very appropriate to do something else or to transport them in a different means. But it's, it's a pretty ground-shaking change in practice from just the default expensive taxi service as you as you described it yeah and that's absolutely not to demean anything in the situation when you're doing remote triage and, and actually as i was doing the trainee advanced paramedic program i started to do some of the remote consultations and there is such a difference between having a conversation with somebody on the phone 
and then separately doing a near me and be able to see them and that can give you a little bit more or, or then just being in the room with them and I think as you spend more time as a clinician you get that intuition that builds up and being with someone can make such a difference and so any remote system where you're just on the telephone speaking to someone there is always going to be that point where you think oh you've just said the wrong thing I'm not sure I don't think this is particularly bad but somebody needs to come out to you and, and do a face-to-face the problem is the way the system is developed over, I mean, 60 years, I guess, that Scottish Ambulance Service is that, you know, from those really early days of almost ambulance drivers, you assess the patient or you pick them up and you scoop them and you ran them to a hospital. And that's kind of carried with us and almost been seen as the gold standard that you can't really go wrong if you take somebody to hospital. There's that culture in the background almost of a, you know, no one ever got sacked for taking somebody to hospital. But as we mature as clinicians and, you know, we're now advanced practice and advanced assessments and a bit more of an understanding of the impact taking particularly elderly frail patients to hospital can have and you know we know there's risks of hospital acquired infections we know that people have falls in unfamiliar environments we know that there are some direct drug errors and 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 that sort of things but even if all of that goes well for an older frail patient there's a five percent reduction in functional strength and independence per night spent in hospital and actually it compounds over a week so that by the time you get to five or seven days the sort of sarcopenia and the dependence on hospital can become so bad i guess that they don't really make it back home you know they'll quite often go into step down care they may end up in a care home and we hear it all the time on the road and it's almost a it's something that we make light of as paramedics, I think, where people say, oh, don't take me to hospital, I'll, I'll never come back out again. And we joke and we convince them that it's the right thing for them to go in. But, you know, the reality is for a lot of patients, it doesn't. And I think when we start looking at risks and benefits to the patients in terms of how it impacts on the patient, as opposed to our personal liability for our registration or for our individual, you know, for the ambulance service, you know, if, if we take a patient to hospital, we pass over the responsibility for that patient. So sometimes it's difficult to take the clinical responsibility to say, actually, when I weigh up the risks and benefits, there's actually more risk taking you to hospital today than there is leaving you at home. But this is the safety net I'm going to put in place. This is the Washington advice that I'm going to give. And the big change, and it's coming back to the conversation about the redesign of urgent care, is historically we kind of had that conclude all care with the patient at home and discharge them and then walking away sometimes not feeling entirely comfortable about it or take them to hospital and we never really had much in between and what redesign of urgent care is doing is it's opening up all these pathways for us where we have access to to community teams to hospital at home teams um, and even to same day emergency care centers that are not the ed and all of this means that we've got this i guess a raft of options a toolkit if you like to really stop and say what is it that my patient really needs where is that best provided and actually how quickly does it need to be done because if it doesn't need to be done right now there's probably a better patient journey than me taking them to hospital but all of that is a huge cultural change it's a huge change in mindset i think all the way through from the leadership in ambulance services and it's not just the scott you know it's, it's ambulance services across the country are are having these same sort of conversations but most importantly it's a huge shift in clinical reasoning for our clinicians and i think giving them the confidence to do the right thing by the patient and know that they'll be supported by the services is probably fundamental to this entire paradigm shift. Absolutely. Let's pin this down a little bit more specifically because there's been some really interesting concepts there. To pick an example, I get quite a lot of phone calls from ambulance control about patients who are short of breath and difficulty in breathing. And a lot of these folk have got chronic respiratory conditions. 
let's say as a basic responder, I arrive on scene and and we're not dealing with sort of an immediately life-threatening, but an exacerbation of a chronic condition. Looking at the redesigned urgent care, what are the sort of pathways that I could, or, or the ambulance service could access on our behalf for this patient? It's going to be an interesting conversation that basics will probably need to have at some point in time because we are starting to open up pathways all across Scotland that give us direct access to follow up from community respiratory teams or SDEX, which is same day emergency care units that are designed to stream people in. So you book patients into appointments with the SDEC. They go and they have potentially, talking about respiratory, they may need some blood tests, they may need an x-ray, but actually they're 75 and they're fairly frail and they're not going to sit in the ED for four hours, but equally you know that they don't need admitted to a ward and what else can you do? And so we can convey them straight into an SDEC, get them seen and treated and then get them back home again. It tends to be much more about ambulatory patients, but it's those in-between patients. And at the moment, basics don't have access to that, but I think it's a conversation that's going to happen. You know, redesign of urgent care is bringing together 111, sorry, NHS 24, SAS, GPs and the Flow Navigation Centres and the Flow Navigation Centres are helping these clinicians that are pre-hospital to navigate their system because I think often we're quite nomadic and we may cross boundaries and it's difficult to keep touch on what's available weekdays, weekends, you know, whether you're in one health board or another health board, whether it's in hours, out of hours. So the Flow Navigation Centres will be able to help navigate and it would make sense for me that if we've got our standard GPs, our out-of-hours GPs, our paramedics and technicians on the ambulance phoning into the flow navigation centres for this kind of advice, it would make sense if you're responding on behalf of SAS as a basics doctor that you'd have access to that same support. And the other thing which I find incredibly useful and in the places where it's the strongest, like for instance, Tayside, the prof-to-prof services where you can phone through to a consultant and have that front-loaded senior clinical decision-making conversation about, you know, this is what I think is going on with my patient. Am I missing anything, first of all? So almost like a second opinion. And then actually today in a live and intelligent way, where is the best place for this patient? And I think it would make sense for basics responders to have access to that. In the same way with the ambulance service, where we are there often to respond to true emergencies, but often when we get there, it's not quite as given. And so, and so I would definitely welcome you having access to that flow navigation, the same as we do. I've certainly been at a number of jobs where once the crew has arrived we've rung the prof to prof line and had a sort of three-way conversation between the Scottish Ambulance Service crew myself there as a basics clinician and the consultants in the hospital and that's often been a really productive conversation and we've not always just gone default to the big ED it's meant that some patients can have been screened to a minor injuries A&E for some low-level x-rays or potentially into some follow-up care Again, it's avoided folk just getting the default option of straight to ED with no questions asked. Yeah, completely. And this is right care. You know, this is the redesign of urgent care. And as you say, it has benefits all around. So if you're not going to the big ED, then potentially you've got, you know, less distance to travel. It's then easier for that patient to get back home. You're probably available faster, which means there's less service time that's been involved in that one job. And ultimately for me, everything that we try to do is about the patient outcome. And so if you can get a better patient outcome, but it's also more efficient for the system, it's a real win-win situation. I do find often with these things, when you start doing the right thing, it has knock-on kind of ripple effects. And I think it was John Muir that said that when you pick up anything in nature, you find it's intrinsically linked to everything else. And I think that's the case with this. When we start putting the patient first 
and having those real person-centered conversations, you end up doing what's best for the patient, the clinician and, and the system as a whole. So how have Scottish Ambulance Service clinicians and your colleagues taken to this? Because I think certainly initially it felt as though there was a little bit of resistance that their decision-making ability was being taken away from them. And I know that wasn't the intention, but I just wonder how now it's had a chance to bed in in Tayside. How is it settling in? Exactly as you said. I mean, I remember having sort of fairly difficult conversations early on. And that's in, so Tayside have had a fairly well-established prof-to-prof service for a number of years. So it wasn't brand new. The thing that was different was we, as part of the initial test of change, we actually said, look, if it's an emergency, do what you've always done. You know, you pre-alert, you take them into the resus. But actually, if it's not a life-threatening emergency, what we want you to do is phone ahead to the hospital every single time before you convey. And as you can imagine, there was lots of pushback in terms of, look, it's taken away my autonomy, it's taken away some of my clinical reasoning. Is this going to dumb me down as a clinician because I'm having to, some of the phrases that were used, phone an adult before I convey to hospital. And we sort of pushed through, we had some conversations, we did a lot of engagement work, and then they started using the service. And actually, very quickly, the feedback started to change to, not only is this not taken away from my decision-making autonomy and my clinical reasoning, it's actually enhancing it. For paramedicine, we've always had this problem that clinicians are rural and remote, and you you know what you know, you know potentially what you might be able to Google on your phone if, if you need to, and you've got your crewmate next to you, and that's your little world. When I moved into hospital, I realized that even the consultants in the ED will pick up the phone and speak to a specialist and ask for support and are constantly learning, constantly supervised, constantly mentored and improving because of that. And that seems to be what our clinicians have found. They they make those phone calls every time and it's either reaffirming that the clinical reasoning is correct or it's challenging it or it's giving them new ways of thinking understanding the system better, understanding the patient's needs. Because again, we know quite often we go out and we think we know what's wrong with the patient and we take them to hospital, but we don't see the results. We don't often get feedback. And so it's really difficult to know and progress and understand whether you're getting better all the time or getting better at making the same mistakes all the time. You just don't know. And this prof to prof service is fantastic because clinicians are getting feedback all the time. That's brilliant. We're also then getting to hospital and finding there's less resistance because you know, that nurse saying, why did you bring this patient in? They clearly don't need to be here versus actually the consultants asked me to bring you this patient. And that those conversations stopped happening. It smoothed handovers. And I think it's improved relationships. So I think it's been better for the patients and for the clinicians, but it's also starting to be better for the system. And when we look at the numbers, I'm much more about qualitative stuff, but the quantitative stuff, you know, it rings true as well. We've reduced the number of inter-hospital transfers. So for me, that means we're getting patients to the right place first time, which is brilliant, but we're also reducing the number of people that are going into ED. And I think, you know, the ED can be a bit of a funnel. If you think about everybody that's working out in the community, sending someone in for a further assessment in an ED, it all comes through that front door. And, you know, during the second wave of COVID in particular, we saw real issues throughout the country with ambulances stacking for hours outside hospitals. And in Tayside, because we had that senior clinical decision maker front loading, they had a multiple front door. So obviously we have our, you know, PCI, we have hyperacute stroke. We actually have direct towards for acute medicine and then a little bit for surgical in Tayside. But then we had an East block assessment, which was for COVID. And then we could have that prof prof conversation. So if you had, you know, half a dozen ambulances all arrive at, at the hospital at the same time, because they were spread across different doors, you didn't get any problems with handovers. You didn't get that ambulance stacking. And, and I think, you know, Nine Wells Hospital was one of the only hospitals in Scotland that managed to maintain their four-hour emergency access performance target, if you like, throughout it. And it was because of that front-loaded senior clinical decision-maker. So, 
you know, from everything from improving clinical reasoning on scene to outcomes for the patient, to the efficiencies for the system, you know, having that prof to prof conversation is, is something we've been missing. As you say, the qualitative stuff, the kind of patient centered stuff is the really important stuff, but actually the numbers, if they prove it's working, then that's the easy way to, to reinforce it. So that was phase one. What's coming down the pipeline? What's next in urgent care redesign? It's funny because it's a bit of a transition point at the moment. The next bit is things like, so we're looking particularly at respiratory pathways, actually. So it was good that you mentioned that. And also OPATS, which is your kind of IV antibiotic treatments. We'll also be looking at SDEX. So these are these same day emergency care. So uh, for instance, we're doing a bit of a trial or about to start a trial in Fourth Valley where people that have non-traumatic, low-risk chest pain. So this would be people with no obvious signs of ACS or MI in particular. It's certainly not STEMIs that have got a news of zero, so they're pretty low numbers-wise. We can take them in, and it might be that it's a rule out, you know, you want to get a D-dimer, you want to get a TROP done, but they're very stable patients. We can phone ahead, we can book them in, we can have a conversation with that, usually an advanced nurse. We can then take them to that. So we're still conveying them, we're just not taking them to the front door and adding to that pressure in the ED. They go in, they have those assessments, and they can come back out again. And I think that's going to be quite significant and looking at the numbers I think we can make a big difference there but we're also looking at things like hospital at home teams so for people that either don't want to go to hospital or it's not in their best interest to go to hospital we can bring an enhanced level of care at home and that ties in with that early facilitated discharge as well and all of that means that we potentially have more space in the hospital we have you know available beds which means that people that are in needy that do need to be admitted can move relatively quickly and then we don't have ambulances stacking outside the front door so it's I guess the next stage is that, that a bit more of a whole systems approach and understanding how each element impacts on everything else. And if you are a basics doctor in someone's home waiting for an ambulance that's stacked outside a busy department that has a hospital where the beds are full and you can't discharge anyone, you're going to be stuck on scene for much, much longer. And so for me, it's, as we said, right at the head of this, it's not the sexy bits of potentially the ambulance service or medicine, but it's really, really important that we keep this flow going. And I think we're at a stage now where in Scotland, we've been relatively lucky that up until the pandemic, our demand was managed by our capacity. And I think we've got very close, if not just beyond our capacity, but looking to the future, it's not going to get any easier. You know, we know we've got an aging population. We know the prevalence of long-term conditions and multiple comorbidities is increasing all the time. The population's growing. You know, this demand is not going to go down. So we have to be much more efficient with it. We can't get somewhere different doing exactly what's got us where we are. And the redesign of urgent care for me does two things. One, it protects our emergency response by being more efficient with the demand that we see out there. But the lovely thing about it is it's being done by doing the right thing for the patient. And for me, that means that it's much more likely to work. It's much more likely to be sustainable. It's an exciting thing to be part of. And I think as a basics clinician, you know, there are basics doctors, nurses and paramedics up and down the country who I think have a variable degree of knowledge that this is going on in the background. But I think sort of building in and starting to a role in some of these pathways and potentially being able to put patients into them or give advice to ambulance service personnel at the roadside so that we can, as you say, try and join this push towards getting the right care. You know, it's broader than the kind of conversations that we've had already because of the pre-hospital nature that we're in. You always think of those, we talk about hospitals and maybe even GPs and out of our GPs and, and that kind of thing. But actually it's also 111. It's also pharmacy first. It's opticians that now quite often will see people that have got 
um, your corneal abrasions and things like that. And so it's about when you're there with a patient, it's asking what is it that they need and where best can that be provided and how quickly does it need to be done? And I keep going back to that with clinicians. It's a new way of thinking rather than they've got a genuine healthcare concern i'm going to take them to hospital it's a is hospital the best place for them actually can their needs be met somewhere else johnny we've been asking all of our presenters to give some kind of top tips takeaway points for clinicians what would your suggestions be for folk thinking in the future about this this right care and redesigning urgent care when you're on scene with a patient first of all you need to clear those immediately life-threatening time critical situations and it's almost a different pace it's a gear change at that stage isn't it so you've got your patients you know they're not an emergency Take your time at that stage. What is it that your patient needs? Where is it best achieved? And what's the time scale that that's needed? And that would be my first point, so it's that those questions. The second one is more and more we're hearing about the brand principles. And this is the, the benefits, the risks, the alternatives, and what happens if I do nothing, brand principles. And I think having those conversations and weighing up the, the benefits of hospital versus the benefits of an alternative, what are the risks of the alternative and what are the risks of hospital? What are the alternatives? Are the alternatives as good, if not better, than taking somebody to hospital? And then what happens if I do nothing? You know, if I think that this diagnosis is X and it's self-limiting and within three days they'll be better, then it's probably okay to say that and to have a decision that's patient-centered and shared to leave somebody at home. If they are ultimately at risk of dying, then we're going to convince them to go to hospital. So I think the brand principles are really good at getting the right care for the patient. And the final thing is, pick up the phone, phone a friend. Prof2Prof services are amazing. And I think it is changing how paramedics are operating and potentially how paramedicine will be in the future. Absolutely. And yeah, I can only endorse that as a secondary care clinician. I find being able to, to tap into the ambulance service and borrow their Prof2Prof line to ask advice, just run something past somebody else who's sat away in somewhere that's nice and warm and not at the side of the road yeah makes a huge amount of difference when your brain is stressed and overloaded the bit with that is that everybody forgets as well that as a pre-hospital clinician you have very limited access to patient notes records and actually having somebody that's in a senior clinical position but also who can jump into the notes and see what their medical history is like see what medication they're on see how their long-term condition normally plays out if they exacerbate is just game-changing when it comes to your clinical decision making and reasoning on scene Johnny, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing the work that you've been up to and the team at Scottish Ambulance Service. And I suspect there'll be more to come in the future. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.